Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution and a chapter on what the book has dubbed War Communism, which is how communism is operating under the constraints of Russian society of the time, where it is ravaged by war and struggling to get things going again. So let's continue. The Food Dictatorship The grain shortage, which first emerged during the First World War, was exacerbated by the revolution. Footnote 16. The breakup of the landowners' estates and the consolidated farms of wealthier peasants strengthened subsistence farming at the expense of cash crops. Crucially, the separation of Ukraine for much of the Civil War deprived Moscow of access to a region that had produced 35% of marketed grain before the war, and grain supply was further weakened by the fact that the grain-growing Volga region and Siberia became arenas of military conflict. It has been reckoned that 21 provinces relied on imports of grain, consumer provinces, and the 24 exported grain, producer provinces. And whereas all the consumer provinces were under permanent Bolshevik control during the Civil War, only five of the producer provinces were. The supply situation in general was aggravated by the crisis in transportation. Chaos on the railways steadily mounted, owing to fuel shortages the deterioration of track and rolling stock, the loss of engines to the whites, and the control exercised by the local railway unions. The problems of transportation meant much of the food that actually made it to a railway station either went to waste or was pillaged. Of 1,065 million kilograms of potatoes procured in the Orals in 1920, only 81.9 million reached the urban population. The rest were left to rot or be stolen. The winter of 1917 to 1918 proved to be exceptionally severe, and the food authorities were simply unable to fulfill rations. By early 1918, the bread ration in Petrograd fell at times to as little as 50 grams a day driving many back to the countryside. Workers' organizations and local Soviets clamored to buy bread where they could, and, despite the continuance of the grain monopoly, petty trade, and profiteering, flourished. In the deficit province of Ivanovo-Voznesensk, so-called baggers, Meshuchniki, imported about 49 million kilograms of grain between the 1st of August 1917 and the 1st of January 1918, two and a half times the amount procured by the official food agencies. Having bought grain for 10 to 12 rubles a pud, 16.38 kilograms, in surplus provinces, the fixed price was still only 3 to 4 rubles. They sold it for 50 to 70 rubles. The black market created inequality, but it functioned as a supply network. The hope of the new government was that peasants could be induced to exchange more grain for manufactured goods, such as fabrics, salt, sugar, or kerosene. But the fall in production of such goods, together with rocketing inflation, 
meant that peasants held on to their diminishing stocks of grain. They either ate them because they were hungry, fed them to their livestock, or turned them into alcohol. In Siberia, it was estimated that in the first half of 1918, 196.6 million kilograms of grain were requisitioned, whereas 409.5 million were converted into illegal moonshine. The ban on alcohol continued during these years. Faced with an extreme food shortage in the major cities and lacking the means to induce peasants to part with their grain voluntarily, the Bolsheviks turned to coercion. On the 14th of May, they announced the establishment of a food dictatorship, whereby all surpluses above a fixed consumption norm would henceforth be subject to confiscation. The decree warned darkly that any undisclosed surpluses would be seized, and the guilty parties, enemies of the people, jailed for not less than ten years. In theory, peasants were to be recompensed. 25% of the value of requisitions would be in the form of goods, the rest in money or credits. But by this stage, industrial production was geared largely to meeting the needs of the Red Army, so very little in the way of consumer goods was produced. According to the most generous estimate, only about half of the grain requisitioned in 1919 received some form of compensation, and in 1920, only around 20%. The campaign to confiscate grain was targeted on the Black Earth provinces of Saratov, Samara, Penza, and Tambov, the other main grain-growing regions already being in the hands of anti-Bolshevik forces. Food detachments, consisting of some 76,000 workers, of whom around one-third were Bolsheviks or sympathizers, barged into the villages. Needless to say, peasants responded by hiding their grain or by violent resistance. Over the course of 1918, 7,309 members of food detachments were killed. Leaving to one side the conflict it provoked, the food dictatorship was hardly successful even judged as a desperate measure to feed the towns. By December, about 982.8 million kilograms had been taken, but because of the chaos on the railways and waterways, some of the grain seized was left to rot at dispatch points, while livestock starved because of lack of fodder. The food dictatorship was not just a measure of desperation forced on a government by the prospect of starvation in the cities. It was what Alexander Tsiropa, the commissar for food, on 9th of May called a war on the rural bourgeoisie. Tsiropa had, after 1905, been the manager of the estates of Prince Vyacheslav Kugishev. The Bolsheviks were convinced that kulaks were deliberately holding back grain, and the hope was that by establishing committees of the rural poor, Kombedi, poor peasants would rise up against their richer neighbours, providing the regime with the social base in the countryside that it so sorely needed. In reality, many of the members of the Kombedi were activists in the food detachments, military personnel, and party workers. A study of more than 800 village-level kombedi in Tambov showed that one-third of members had never engaged in farming. 
The Comvedi assisted the food detachments in seizing grain and other forms of property, imposing fines, and generally carrying out arbitrary acts and illegal arrests. Unsurprisingly, rural communities did not welcome the intruders. In August 1918, the Congress of Peasants in Kargopol County in Arkhangelsk province declared, quote, We consider the organization of Comvedi unnecessary since, thanks to the equal division of land across the county, the former division of the population into classes has passed away. End quote. Footnote 17. This is not to say that there was no resentment of rich peasants on the part of poorer peasants. In Kolovskaya, in the forested province of Olenets, peasants petitioned the Pudovsky County Soviet on the 18th of June 1918. Quote, Send us help even if it is only a small Red Army detachment, so that we shall be saved from an early death from hunger. Let it persuade or force our neighbors to act like decent people, if only for a time, and share with us their grain surpluses at this terrible moment. We will point out to you the well-fed grain kings who shelter by their treasure chests. End quote. Footnote 18. This plea was motivated less by class consciousness, however, than by a desire to restore the mechanisms of mutual aid in the commune. In autumn 1918, the tempo of creating Combedi accelerated, even as the central leadership was beginning to have doubts about the wisdom of the policy, since they facilitated the formation of rural party cells. In 33 provinces, over 70% of the 139,000 township and village combedi that existed in late November had come into existence since September. Yet as early as August, Lenin had begun to have misgivings, calling for more compromise with the middle peasantry. And in November, the 6th Congress of Soviets came out in favor of their abolition, owing to, quote, bitter clashes between Combedi and peasant organs of power during autumn of 1918." The turn to the middle peasantry was accompanied on the 11th of January 1919 by the introduction of the Rastvertska, or quota assessment, under which the food commissariat sought to calculate the amount of grain required by the country as a whole and then divided up between provinces, on the basis of its estimates of surpluses. This Razvertska, in theory, introduced a degree of predictability into food requisitioning, since each county and village knew the quota it had been assigned. But in reality, the food detachments continued to squeeze as much as they could from a reluctant peasantry. The quota assessment system did lead to an increase in the amount of agricultural produce squeezed from the countryside, between August 1918 and August 1919, it is reckoned that 1,767 million kilograms were raised in European Russia, only 41.5% fulfillment of the quota set. The second procurement of 1919 to 1920 raised 3,481 million kilograms, about 85% of which came from European Russia the rest mainly from Siberia. The third procurement of 1920 to 1921 
raised 3,882 million kilograms from the provinces of European Russia alone. This was no more than the grain procurement of 1916 to 1917, yet it represented a huge burden of suffering for the peasantry, since output had almost halved in the intervening period, owing to the reduction of sowing and the decrease in yield. Footnote 19. During these years, the word vikachka, literally the pumping out of the peasantry, passed into common parlance. By December 1920, there were 62,043 activists in detachments directly responsible to the food commissariat, plus 30,560 in detachments responsible to the military food bureau. On the 7th of March 1920, the chair of Novgorod Provincial Soviet wrote to the food commissariat, quote, The food detachments are completely unable to carry out their task. They stir up the villages where they go against Soviet power. Rudeness, illegal demands for food for themselves, confiscation of cattle and their demonstrative slaughter in case of refusal, cases of straightforward theft, accordions, rings, kerchiefs, etc. The province is starving. A huge quantity of peasants is eating moss and other rubbish. End quote. Perhaps the gravest indictment of requisitioning was that it encouraged peasants to farm less land, so that in the major grain-growing regions, the area put to seed was 15% to 24% less than in 1913. This was also a consequence of lack of manpower, livestock, and ruined equipment. The hostility of the Bolsheviks to markets did not improve the supply situation. Draconian penalties for speculation were prescribed, of 10 years hard labor plus confiscation of property. Yet this did not deter hundreds of thousands of baggers from scouring the countryside for food to sell to townsfolk. If baggers were found to be carrying more than the permitted amounts of goods, they risked arrest by the Cheka or the roadblock detachments that were set up to search rail passengers and those entering towns on foot. The behavior of these detachments was described by the Soviet CEC in January 1919 as a shocking disgrace. Many arrested for speculation were just ordinary folk forced to truck and barter. In November 1918, a girl from Gzatsk wrote to the Council of People's Commissars, quote, my father is a peasant, and I work now on the railway. My mother sells things at the station and forces me to do the same. I have always been against speculation, but as they say, hunger can make us do anything. Even communists have to eat. End quote. This does not mean that organized speculation was a figment of the Bolshevik imagination. Checker reports suggest that there was a market in everything from machinery to land, buildings, enterprises, and even stocks and shares, and the activities of organized networks undoubtedly pushed up prices. In July 1919, the British historian Sir Barnard Paris, at this time seconded to the British embassy in Petrograd, was shocked when merchants in Ekaterinburg, where the supply situation was dire, attempted to sell off hoarded food at knockdown prices before the city fell into Bolshevik hands. Yet the fight against the illegal and semi-legal market was never consistent, 
for the Bolsheviks were forced to recognize that without it, townspeople would starve. Astonishingly, it is reckoned that at least half the food requirements of the urban population were met through the market. Even as the nationalization of trade was being proclaimed, the authorities were forced to allow peasants to sell 24.6 kilograms, one and a half pud, of food per family member. This is not to suggest that complete reliance on the market could have fed the Red Army, the towns, and the consumer provinces. Even if the Bolsheviks had not taken a single pud of grain from the peasants, the latter would still have had little incentive to produce more than was necessary for subsistence, since there were almost no manufacturers to buy and money had become almost worthless. Even in Siberia, where Kolchak's regime had far greater surpluses at its disposal, and where there was no forced requisitioning, lack of manufacturers, inflation, and chaos in the monetary system led peasants to withhold grain and to cut back their sown areas. The Bolsheviks thus had, quote, to take from the hungry and give to the hungrier, end quote, as one official put it. That said, this does not mean that there was no alternative to the policy that was pursued. Much more use, for example, could have been made of the cooperative network, not only with respect to improving food supply, but also in relation to stimulating artisanal manufacture in the countryside. If congresses of peasant Soviets are any guide, most of which were dominated by left SRs, Peasants were willing to exchange grain for manufactured goods on an organized basis, preferably through the cooperatives, and so long as this was at a price that did not discriminate in favor of manufactured goods. Yet, the Bolsheviks were deeply suspicious of the cooperative movement, not without reason, since it had initially opposed Soviet power and were... <coughs> and were reluctant to recognize that it had a far more effective network of distribution in place than did the Commissariat of Food. So the regime expended more energy trying to oust the moderate socialists from the leadership of the cooperative movement than it did in seeking to tap its potential to mitigate the food supply crisis. It is ironic that within a couple of years, Lenin should be hailing the cooperative movement as a framework for slow advance towards socialism. War Communism in Crisis As we have seen, the Bolsheviks counterposed the anarchy and inequality generated by the market to a system of statewide distribution via the compulsory organization of the population into consumer communes. Attempts to introduce rationing had begun before the February Revolution, and in spring 1917, the provisional government introduced rationing of bread and sugar, followed later by some other grain and fat products. In July 1918, the so-called class ration was introduced in Petrograd, and soon extended to Moscow and other towns. This classified the population into a hierarchy of four different ration categories. The highest was for skilled workers, the lowest was designed, in Zinoviev's words, to give the bourgeoisie just enough bread that they would not forget the smell of it. From the end of 1918, the shrunken ranks of industrial workers were almost completely reliant on rations. The food shortages meant that it was frequently impossible to fulfill ration norms even for specialized workers in the first ration category. 
a joke to the rounds. Quote, a religious instruction teacher asked his secondary school, Our Lord fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. What is this called? To which one wag replied, the ration system. End quote. Inability to meet ration norms fueled pressure on groups to get themselves into a higher ration category. By April 1920, in Petrograd, 63% of the population was in category 1, and only 0.1% remained in the lowest category. Footnote 20. The complexity of the ration system, plus the fact that it came to be used not only to punish the bourgeoisie, but also to reward key groups, such as academics and artists, or to defuse industrial unrest, meant that the system became a major source of corruption. In 1920, the urban population of the RSFSR, minus Turkestan, numbered 12.3 million, yet there were 22 million urban ration cards in circulation. Footnote 21. A stupendous crisis was building up, yet the scent of victory encouraged the Bolsheviks to believe that the draconian methods used to win the civil war could now be turned to building socialism. Universal labor conscription had been instituted as early as January 1918 as a means to, quote, eliminate the parasitic layers of society and organize the economy, end quote, footnote 22. And throughout the Civil War, members of the bourgeoisie were drafted into clearing snow, unloading food, repairing roads and railways, and even teaching the illiterate to read. In 1918, workers in the defense industries and on the railways were also put on a semi-military footing, ordered to fulfill fixed norms of output and losing the right to change jobs. In 1919, the Defense Council extended militarization to employees in marine and river transport, certain mines, and other fuel sectors. Only at the start of 1920, however, was the proposal made to implement labor conscription on a mass scale. In January, the Defense Council transformed the Third Red Army, which had been fighting in the Urals, into a labor army tasked with agricultural reconstruction. During the first half of the year, as many as 6 million people were drafted to work in cutting timber and peat. In March, with absenteeism on the railways now running at between 20% and 40%, Trotsky took over the Commissariat of Transport and set about imposing military-style discipline on the workforce. Trotsky emerged as the major exponent to the idea that labor conscription could be used to build socialism. In Terrorism and Communism, he declared, quote, Obligation and compulsion are essential conditions in order to bind down bourgeois anarchy, to secure socialization of the means of production and labor, and to reconstruct economic life on the basis of a single plan. End quote. Not all Bolsheviks were convinced, and some were repelled by the idea that the labor army offered a microcosm of socialist society. For the best part of a year, however, the leadership committed itself to a vision of army and economy fused into a single, all-embracing military economic body, run on hierarchical and commandist lines. 
yet the capacity of stubborn individuals to overwhelm the grandest of plans quickly became apparent. In the first nine months of 1920, for example, no fewer than 90% of the 38,514 workers mobilized for work in 35 armaments plants left their jobs. This prompted a volley of measures to punish labor deserters, including dispatch to concentration camps. But these were a sign of impotence, not of strength. As the civil war drew to a close, utopian thinking in the all-Russian Communist Party, RKPB, reached its apogee. By the beginning of 1920, the amount of money in circulation was 150 times the level of 1917. Prices had risen to 6,290 times the 1914 level. Footnote 23. As the year wore on, efforts to stabilize the currency and maintain monetary taxes gave way in some quarters to the comforting delusion that money might be eliminated altogether. Lenin cautioned that, quote, it is impossible to abolish money at once, end quote, yet gave his blessing to plans to replace currency with labor units, known as tredi, defined by the Menshevik economist S.G. Strumlin as the expenditure of 100,000 kilogram meters during the workday of a single worker. Footnote 24. A flurry of decrees abolished rents on housing, payments for heating and lighting, fares on trams and railways, charges for the postal service, health services, and even for the theatre and cinema. In the first half of 1920, 11 million people ate in public canteens, including 7.6 million children, though the food was meagre and badly cooked and conditions often filthy. These measures seemed to augur a moneyless society, and there were those who were willing to justify them in ideological terms. Yet they were fundamentally dictated by practical exigencies, notably the fact that it now cost more to collect money payments than it did to make these services free. In February 1920, Trotsky proposed that requisitioning be replaced with a tax in kind as an incentive to peasants to sow more grain but he was rebuffed. In keeping with the commandist spirit of the times, the government in December opted to back a plan by Osinski to set up sewing committees. As a left communist, Osinski had resigned from the chairmanship of the Supreme Council of National Economy when the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was signed. Sewing committees were a typical war communist measure that envisaged the committees distributing seed, organizing sewing, and instructing peasants on how much area was to be sown. The idea was to combine coercion, shock work, and incentives. Peasants were to be allowed to keep a higher proportion of grain as a reward for fulfilling state planting obligations. But the days of war communism were numbered. The devastating consequences of food requisitioning could no longer be ignored. In autumn 1920, the first signs that people were beginning to starve in the Volga region appeared. The following year, a severe drought ruined the harvest, bringing mass starvation to millions, mainly in the Volga provinces and the southern Urals. The famine raged from autumn 1921 into the summer of 1922, 
only diminishing gradually thereafter. In all, up to 5 million people died, not only from hunger, but also from diseases such as typhoid fever, cholera, bubonic plague, and smallpox. Footnote 25. The Commissariat of Enlightenment received grotesque reports that mothers were tying their children to separate corners of their huts for fear they would eat one another. The government struggled none too impressively with the situation, but was strapped for resources. In Orenburg province, where as many as 100,000 people perished, 4.3 million kilograms of rye, tens of thousands of kilograms of rice, and 105 wagons of seed corn were shipped in by September 1921, and all children and 30,000 adults were evacuated to Turkestan. Footnote 26. Without the sterling efforts of the American Relief Administration and the International Red Cross, however, millions more would have died. Foreign aid workers found party officials in the famine areas, quote, fearful men, jumpy, flying off into violence on very slight provocation. So insecure had been their hold on power that they were suspicious of the most innocent acts. End quote. Footnote 27. War communism was abandoned at the 10th Party Congress in March 1921, and in October, Lenin admitted that it had reached a dead end a year previously. In answer to the question posed at the start of this section, whether the package of policies was dictated by circumstances or by ideology, Lenin confessed that it had been dictated by desperate necessity, but also by, quote, an attempt to introduce the socialist principles of production and distribution by direct assault, i.e. in the shortest, quickest, and most direct way, end quote. The collapse of industrial output, the need to feed the population, chaos in the transport system, destruction of assets as a result of warfare, had all placed severe constraints on the Bolshevik scope for action. That the exigencies of war did much to dictate policy can be seen from the fact that even white administrations, favorably disposed to the free market and to reprivatizing industry and the banks, resorted to measures of economic compulsion in the interests of the state. Moreover, one of the policies that became associated with war communism, the imposition of fixed prices on agricultural products, was a continuation of the policy introduced by the Tsarist regime. Yet this one policy did much to stoke inflation and undermine the value of the ruble. Thus, structural constraints, contingencies, and unintended consequences all served to shape the policies that constituted war communism. But Lenin was correct to suggest that Bolshevik ideology also played a crucial role in determining policy. Policy choices were not unilaterally imposed by objective circumstances. They were defined by the dominant conceptions and inherited dispositions of the RKP, B. sometimes as matters of explicit choice, sometimes as unconscious reflexes. Antipathy towards the market, a penchant for centralism, and the equation of state ownership and state regulation with advance to socialism all served powerfully to shape the policies that came to typify war communism, and though it was abandoned in 1921, 
the command administrative system, and the militarized ideology that had inspired it would prove to be lasting elements in the Soviet system. And that's going to do it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, anything like that, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to soundimage.org to find lots of his work there. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening and keep reading. <laughs>